Welcome to the Hirschfeld Century Podcast. I'm Katherine Eastman, the Archives Manager of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. Today we have on Melanie George, who curated our brand new exhibition, Amplified Dignity, Black Dancers Drawn by Hirschfeld. As always, please follow along with this exhibition. There's a link in the show notes. And if you're viewing the exhibition while we're talking about it, it's going to be a better experience for everyone. So scroll down right now, click on the exhibition link and follow along so you can see exactly what we're talking about. We had a very enlightening conversation with her about the new exhibition, and we hope you enjoy it. Before we start the conversation, I just wanted to remind you to follow us on Facebook, the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, Twitter and Instagram, at Al Hirschfeld. You can find the podcast at alhirschfeldfoundation.org slash podcasts with an S at the end. S is for stomping at the Savoy, which you'll hear about in our conversation. And don't forget to check out our shop, alhirschfeldfoundationshop.org where you can find merchandise from this exhibition and a lot of our previous exhibitions, as well as the largest collection of limited edition Hirschfeld etchings and lithographs. Without further ado, we'll play the conversation. Today we have Melanie George on the podcast. Uh, Melanie is a dance educator, a choreographer, a dramaturg, and a scholar. She is the founder and director of Jazz Is, a dance project, and an associate curator at Jacob's Pillow. If you want to know more about the many, many things that Melanie does, you should go to her website, melaniegeorge.org. You can also find her on uh, Instagram at uh, Jazz Dance Direct. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Jazzy Dramaturg and on Facebook uh, under Jazz Is dot 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 dance project. Uh, welcome, Melanie, and thank you for coming on uh, the podcast, and more importantly, for curating our uh, new exhibition, Amplified Dignity, Black Dancers Drawn by Hirschfeld. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, uh, the Amplified Digni Dignity exhibition is part of a series of exhibitions we started last summer uh, uh, about uh, Black arts. Um, the first exhibition was about uh, Black theater. This show is about Black dance. And later this year, we'll be doing shows on uh, Black film and Black music. And at the end of the year, we'll do a special 80th anniversary uh, uh, exhibition and podcast about Hirschfeld's uh, Harlem is seen by Hirschfeld, a collection of uh, uh, lithographs um, that he did of Harlem in 1941. So Melanie, tell us about the Amplified Dignity show that you put together. Uh, well, I was given um, sort of the free reign to look at all of the images that were available. And, um, and I, what really just honestly, I went with the images that I found the most engaging and um, and uh, and then sort of looked for the story that was within those images. And so um, for me, that meant having to do some research on um, the role of caricature and um, and how to situate black artists, particularly ones depicted um, in a pre-civil rights America, how to how to situate that art. Um, it meant having to do some some research around Hirschfeld and what his politics were. Sure. Um, and uh, and out of that, um, you know, being a fan of of all of the people who are depicted within the images, um, the thing that jumped out to me was that you know these are people who've had really 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 long careers and um, were you know journey people as opposed to saying journeymen they were journey people <laughs> uh, yeah. the arts and um and regardless of what production that they're involved in or how they were captured or even the images that are um sort of more abstract and not not depicting any person in particular that we can name um that to me it's this sense of um of being very grounded in a, in a sense of of history and and lineage within dance and in diaspora and um so someone like uh the nicholas brothers who are two of the the greatest tap dancers that have ever walked the face of the earth and um 
And though they are successful by the standards of the artists who were their peers, their success had a ceiling to it. Right. And uh, there is a there is a dignity around being the very best with the ceiling, you know, that is that is not of your own making. Right. Um, so that's sort of where the idea of the title came from for me. Sure. A mix of of where these artists are situated in history and what it means to be depicted in caricature, which is also this sense of amplification. Right. You, everybody has to know you for the, in some sense, for the caricature to be successful. Right. Um, and I think the Nicholas brothers, perfect example. Um, they were, they were well known in their field at that time. I mean, uh, as you write, they were Fred Astaire's favorite uh, tap dancers. Um, and uh, so I think their, their, their peers, no matter what color they might have been, recognized their, their brilliance. And it's just really unfortunate they never got the uh, public acceptance because of the time period that they, that well, they deserved. Well, it's interesting. I think that the, 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 the clips of the Nicholas Brothers are some of the most circulated on the internet in terms mm. of when tap dance comes around in blogs and in, you know, on Facebook and all of those things. And so it isn't that people don't recognize it. Sure. Um, uh, and, and, and to be quite frank with you, I feel like it, it, um, it's not enough to say that it's unfortunate. It, you know, it was strategic, strategic and systemic. And so um, they're, they're victims of, of a society that um, found them useful, but not valuable. And, right. Uh, and and that is beyond problematic. It is you know the nature of how the arts function in our history. The other thing I'll just say is that um, being that Hirschfeld, um, you know, is an American artist who depicted American artists, there's no way that you could possibly catalog dance in America or music in America or theater in America. But <laughs> since I'm a dancer, right, um, I'll talk about that. There's no way you can catalog the evolution of dance in America and not look at the contribution of Black dancers. It's just simply impossible. Um, oh, agreed. And, so, and yeah. so, you know, it, it, you know, I threw in that tidbit about, you know, the sort of like, did you know that, that the Nicholas Brothers are Fred Astaire's favorite dancers, but it also sort of, in a way, for me, it rankles that I have to sort of qualify right. their art by giving them that designation that this, you know, this most successful white artist, he was their right. favorite, you know? Right. It's, right. it's, unfortunately, the way that the way that history functions is that it's not been enough to just right. you know they were the best of the best, you know. Um, with that, one of the reasons we want to do these series of exhibition is to uh, use the power of Hirschfeld to help people to understand so many of these performers who they who they may not know or maybe they've seen and and don't know enough about, and uh, that's what's so great when I read uh, the text of the show. Uh, for a lot of these drawings, I knew who the people were, but I learned a great deal about really what they did and, and, and much more about who they were. So I think for anybody who's maybe even seen some of these drawings before, it's going to be a, a, a revelation. So thank you for that. Well, let's start, you know, when we talk about, you know, the history of dance, um, I think maybe one of the earliest dances in the show uh, is the cakewalk. Sure. You know, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, when, when, when you say cakewalk in the Hirschfeld world, there's a wonderful print that he did in 1970 of uh, two uh, black figures in red, white, and blue costumes doing the cakewalk. Um, and you chose a wonderful one, uh, a, the cakewalk scene from St. Louis Woman. Um, so, yeah, uh, a little history on the cakewalk would be wonderful. Sure. So the cakewalk is um, this amazing representation of of the politics and curiosities of race relations in America, and um, it stems from uh, plantation owners who had enslaved people observing them doing an imitation of them. So this is a thing that they didn't they didn't know initially that, that these uh, <laughs> these black dancers were had made up a dance that was meant to uh, satirize the way that they were seeing the mannerisms of these white plantation owners. And, um, and then as is the way <laughs> of cultural appropriation, they looked at this dance and started and first had the, the, the dancers, the enslaved peoples uh, do this dance as competition for their entertainment. And so they would pit them against each other. 
And the origin of the name is that the winner would get a cake of some sort. Uh, and then uh, the, the white owners uh, are so enamored with that kind of dancing, that style of dancing, that they begin to adopt it themselves. Hmm. Uh, and so it's this odd mix <laughs> yeah. that can, can, can be, uh, you can find other versions of, a, of this story over time um, with, with dance, uh, um, where there's this, this originated here and was taken there and now became something else and may have been repurposed. Um, so the, the actual cakewalk itself, you know, unlike the, the roots of a lot of, of West African dance, which is what we know to be the roots of jazz. Um, and the cakewalk is considered an early jazz dance, uh, in mm -hmm. America. Um, the the cakewalk itself is sort of more of an has a more of an upright erect spine whereas we know the roots of jazz tend to have a much more rounded spine and you tend to be lower to the ground and so embedded in the actual dancing itself you see this um the way that the african aesthetics are bumping up against the eurocentric aesthetics within the work wow so in in a sense when hirschfeld draws it he's caricaturing a caricature because I mean, that's what it was set out to be caricature that was actually a caricature because right. <laughs> the, the nature of, of um, the performance of these kinds of dances or theater or comedy or music um, is that all of this stuff is grounded in minstrelsy, right? And, yeah. and minstrelsy is, um, is, was purposely meant to be satirized caricatures, exploitation um, of perceived negative depictions of black people. And so it like the, the, la the layers yeah, <laughs> that's right. the case, you know, is, is, is really all of American history in terms of race relations. You know? Right. I mean, that's so often American history is the, all these layers and especially when it comes to race. Um, well, one of the uh, wonderful pieces that you pick for this show is an image of Josephine Baker um, that I don't think many people know. There's a very well-known uh, drawing that Hirschfeld did of her in 1964 when she came back to America and did a, a special engagement on Broadway. Um, but this is from the Ziegfeld Follies in the 1930s. And uh, you write very eloquently about this piece and, and who she is. And could you fill us in on that? Sure. I was really moved by this image because, um, as I say in the caption that accompanies the image, most depictions of Josephine Baker are, you know, are a little, a little bit more salacious and um, and they, protect, they um, depict her as, you know, in a sort of her most wild and sensual. And that isn't that that wasn't who she was on stage. But sure. It, we know that people have many layers of humanity and that's just one version of who she was. And so instead of, you know, Josephine Baker in the banana skirt, um, this is her just purely singing in a gown and, right. and it, and it humanized her in a way that I so rarely see her humanized in in drawings. Um, it, it, it made her the subject, not the object. Right. And, um, so this particular um, event, uh, I believe it was 1936. She, right been invited to join a sort of remounting of a Ziegfeld Follies production. They were reconceiving it and um, trying to update it and she was invited to do this. And I think from what I can tell from the research that I found, it seems that she didn't do a lot of the sort of wildness that people were used to. And, um, and she was doing a lot of singing and she had pr just prior to that performance, she had done another show uh, somewhere in Europe where she did a lot of operatic training. And so I think that that my sense is that there was some of that um, kind of singing. And I think, frankly, that people were not expecting that from the wild black woman who right. singing, we used to sing, you know, in, in the banana skirt. And it wasn't well received. Um, she, the review uh, used some slurs uh, in regard to her. And shortly after, she returned to France and renounced her American citizenship. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so it, it's, it captures her in this time. And she looks so, she looks so, simultaneously youthful and vulnerable and yet um, a brave uh, right. in that, that particular image that it, it, I was really moved by it. Yeah, it has a very ethereal quality to it as well. I mean, I, uh, I'm fascinated uh, just when I look at it. Um, we only have a reproduction of the newspaper clipping, the drawing, I wish I knew where it was. Um, yeah, we, I'm didn't sure actually, uh, we didn't actually know about this drawing and uh, I was going through the microfilms at the New York Public Library Performing Arts, 
and it was came out of nowhere and i said oh my gosh we don't we don't even know about this drawing so unfortunately that's the only reproduction we have of it but i'm so glad we we found it at all yeah amazing yeah it sort, of, it sort of stands to reason in a way though because um aside from you know what i know to be your extensive archival practices as a performance, because it was so not well regarded, I, I'm not surprised that like the accompanying <laughs> imagery yeah. that exists also just sort of fades away, you know? Right, right. Uh, it's, it's one of the harder things I think about being a historian is trying to keep track of things that people didn't necessarily uh, value during the time that they existed. Precisely, precisely. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if Hirschfeld had seen her in Paris in the 1920s. He spent a considerable amount of time there. And uh, a review that featured hot jazz uh, would have been catnip for him. Mm. Uh, we know in 1928, he goes to see Buster West and uh, uh, Noble Sissel leading a band. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, that uh, I think included Sidney Bechet. And, uh, you know, it's a fabulous time. He's, he's waiting in Paris before he's going to Russia for his honeymoon. Um, and that's the drawing he sends back from Paris. So um, I'm sure he was in those clubs and I'm sure he was familiar. And, and of course he would have known the, the posters, of course, of, uh, of Baker, uh, the Paul Cologne uh, posters, which uh, would have been something he would have been very uh, attracted to. Yeah. Well, let me also say that when I make the point about the distinction between that Herschel image and, and these sort of more famous, more, frequently reproduced images. I love those images too. I have one of them in my spare bedroom right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it isn't that I, you know, I'm trying to erase that part of, I couldn't erase it if I tried. No. But, yeah, right. <laughs> so, but but I, I love the idea of um, part of, to me, part of the representation of dignity is also allowing uh, these black artists to be their full selves and, right. and not be boxed in. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I want to talk about two other uh, tap dancers because I know you, you really know so much about all kinds of dance, but tap dance as well. Uh, Bunny Briggs and Honey Coles. Just two uh, of the greatest tap dancers who are who, who just ever. Like I, I have, I love Honey Coles so much. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I, when I was well, a young person, I had a crush on him, and this man was like, <laughs> I had a crush on him. Uh, um, I'll start by talking about. Honey Coles in terms of Coles and Atkins. And so he was part of this very famous duo called Coles and Atkins, which was him, Charles Honey Coles, and his partner, uh, who's Charles Charlie Atkins. And um, most people are probably more, they may not know it, but they're probably more familiar with the work of Atkins uh, because after, I'm going to give a little bit of extra history here just to contextualize it. No, please. So, um, so Tap dance was was the popular dancing that you saw in American musical theater for a very, very long time. And there was also a whole circuit of nightclubs that tap dancers toured with jazz combos, um, and they had cold careers around this. And mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is that Agnes DeMille made Oklahoma and all of a sudden ballet began to be the thing that we saw in musical theater more than tap. Mm -hmm. uh, Along with that, and just sort of changing tides and and uh, and and theater meant that tap dancers began to not have as much work available to them as they had towards the 1950s, and pretty much for like a solid 20, 25 years. Um, and so after when that was happening, these guys had to go find other jobs, like you know job jobs, uh, mm -hmm. just be. I shouldn't say just because it's you know it's amazing, but they couldn't be exclusively artists, you know, working artists. And so, uh, Honey Coles ends up getting a job as the um, production manager at at uh, the Apollo Theater, and Charlie Atkins becomes the choreographer for Motown. So all of those signature dance steps that you see in from the Temptations and the Supremes and Let's wow. and that's all Honey Coles. And so a lot of people are actually exposed to him. Sure. Um, uh, but also, Charlie Atkins was at you know one of the most famous theaters for black dancers ever uh, when he wasn't performing himself, and so um, they were they were what's called a class act, which um, speaks to the sort of smoothness and elegance of their style. They always wore suits. Class acts always wore suits when they performed. Um, but also, it's um, it's a little bit of a dog whistle to say like these are acceptable. Either these are the acceptable kinds of black artists that you want. Right. Um, as opposed to like the sort of down and dirty hoofers and and um, and they could also do the down and dirty hoofing too. But um, 
the the sort of marketing of them in that way was also strategic and and um has you know elements of racism embedded in that and so um just uh two of the most like crystal clear tappers <laughs> uh and um so smooth and charming and handsome and i remember the first time i saw them dance i was like oh i'm in love with these men <laughs> <laughs> were my grandmother's age so <laughs> right <laughs> um, uh, um and um what happens in the 70s uh is there's this resurgence resurgence of an interest in tap dance due in no small part to the success of gregory hines having a right. career and did, and I, I guess my question is, uh, did they learn? Did Gregory Hines learn from them? Yeah, because that's the way tap works. Is that right. you know, it 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 um, is as much a physical, as much an oral as it is a physical tradition. And so all of the masters studied with the masters before them. You know, right. and Gregory Hines was um, just to be on a little bit of a tangent. He was a master in his ability to sort of like. Um, really dig into what a particular master style was and and, and be able to um, uh, reproduce it. I don't want to say mimic because I think mimic diminishes the skill that he had in doing that. Right. Um, and so he could show you like Honey Cole's dances like this and then he could say like Bunny Briggs dances like this, you know. Oh. And, and, and in turn, you know, in the way that Gregory Hines studied with all of those masters before him, Savion Glover studied with Gregory Hines and all right. of you know, so like there's this long, it's, it's, it's a family, it's a community, and it still very much functions that way. And, right. and that was very much an, an Africanist uh, way of, of imparting and sharing an art form. So Bunny Briggs um, is, uh, he's an interpreter and he's, he's masterful um, for his ability to be virtuosic and be like hyper rhythmic and detailed and always super musical. Um, but then also give you some some uh, sort of flourish on the top of the dancing. Um, I actually, blessedly because of YouTube, um, by you know, yeah. I so we all feel that way. <laughs> uh, the image that that uh, Hirschfeld depicts, which is Bunny Briggs doing this solo, is on YouTube. You can watch it, and so oh um, yeah, uh, we may link to that black, then. Black yeah. and Blue was recorded um, for PBS, right. so. Um, and you know, people just throw thing, throw anything up on YouTube these days. And so, someone recorded it off of their television and then shared it on, yes, <laughs> uh, shared it on, on YouTube, and um, and you can actually watch it. And he does this incredible interpretation of in a sentimental mood, a Duke Ellington song. Briggs was known as he toured for a long time with Duke Ellington's orchestra, and he was known as Duke's dancer. Uh, and um, in Black and Blue, which is this. Um, uh, homage <laughs> to the music of, of of Duke Ellington with these uh, uh, um, amazing tap dancers and singers and um, there's a few shows that are um, that are like this. There's you know sophisticated ladies in '81 and right. and, and so um, uptown it's hot, which is yeah, not just when, when you look at the 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 roster of artists on these shows, it's it's incredible. <laughs> like the deck is stacked so high with with talent. And this Bunny Briggs solo, I must have watched it like 15 times. Like it's just, he, I know that, I know that particular tune very, very well. And he made me listen to the song differently because of the way that he does this solo. It's just such a different take on the way most people um, uh, interact with that piece of music as a, as something to dance to. It's, it's really brilliant, brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I want to just ask a little bit, uh, he was Duke's dancer. I didn't realize that when uh, Ellington toured, he, I always just assumed he had the big band and he had singers, but there were also dancers included in that show? Yeah, so that was pretty typical because the thing of it is, is, um, you know, in the, so Tap and, and Lindy Hop uh, are overlapping in terms of, um, I mean, Tap actually precedes Lindy Hop, but um, in terms of America's popular music in, in the early, um, up until like 1950s, uh, late 40s, early 50s, America's popular music was jazz music. And um, and the evolution of jazz dance and jazz music are happening at the exact same time and they were learning from each other. And so it wasn't uncommon that part of the um, performance was that you would also have dancers involved, right? Lindy mm -hmm. Hopper toured with these bands, tap dancers toured with these bands. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that is that is essentially the entire way that the Cotton Club functioned was that you had these floor shows with, you know, accompanying bands. And so, um, yeah, so Bunny Briggs toured with with Duke for a, for a long time and and 
Um, and he's not unique in that. It just so happens he was with one of the most famous bands, you know. Right. Of he course. Was one of the most famous tap dancers. But that actual relationship is quite common. Right. And I wouldn't be, I'm not surprised that Duke pulled out one of the best dancers. You know, he would have attracted that, you know. Well, because he's, because tap dancers are, are essentially jazz musicians who are working with their bodies. Right. Um, they, they interpret and they're based in rhythm and syncopation. And, um, you know, Bunny Briggs is so very musical that it, it makes complete sense that he would be the one because of his ability to, to interpret. There's, um, there's a story that I tell often when I'm lecturing about jazz dance and jazz music, which is um, about how Duke Ellington um, has this quote uh, where he uh, said he always made room for his, or it's a, it's a Robert O'Mealy quote, but he talks about Duke Ellington as, as having often made room for his co-signers. And um, when he wrote this, this song that many people know as Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me, it's also known as Concerto for Cootie. And it's because he wrote this song for Cootie Williams, because he knew specifically what Cootie Williams would do to this right. song. He didn't write Concerto for Trumpet, meaning anyone could play this song. It was specifically in mind, stylistically, with what Cootie was going to add on top of that when it was his time to interpret in solo. And that's what tap dancers do. They interpret in solo, right? Or they do it in a collective. And so um, I, not, not having been in the room, it, it, I would guess that Duke Ellington saw Bunny Briggs as being, a, as being another contributing musician to the ensemble. Right, right. That's fascinating. I did not know that. Um, I want to, a little bit from that period in the 40s, uh, when Hirschfeld did his book, Harlem is Seen by Hirschfeld, not surprisingly, there's a number of dance images in that. There is the Lindy Hop, but the two that you chose for the show were Stomping at the Savoy and Slow Blues. And I was wondering if you could talk about why you chose those two pieces. Sure. Um, I love, so like this, first of all, this, the Savoy Ballroom is is a legendary hub for all things that were great in terms of swing music and Lindy Hopping. And uh, the greatest dancing happened within the walls of that building. And it's really tragic that it was um, completely torn down. Mm. Uh, it, it's shocking to me when I think, like, when I think about it, if I really have to think about it, like, why would you tear that building down? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Um, but it's I think it's the same thing about Penn Station. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, the history that that building held uh, for the, I don't know, 20 something years that it was in operation uh, uh, are, it, it's just, it's magical. And also like the way that, because because it was happening, you know, it was, it's heyday was between the 20s and the 40s. All the pictures are black and white. And so, right. um, and the way that the dancers talk about the architecture of it, you're like, I'm always just, dying to see color pictures yeah, of I bet. what the space looked like. Um, but um, the stopping at the Savoy, uh, because I'm a, a jazz dance historian first and foremost, um, there was no way I wasn't gonna include that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and it captures um, sort of the volume of people. Um, and also I think it captures the, the, the thing of it as, a, as both an artistic and a social environment. And I think these are things that are um, also embedded into you know, the roots of jazz dance and all of the things that we were able to, to maintain uh, coming out of West African traditions. And so this idea that there's this fluid exchange between who's the watcher and who's the doer. And, mm. and then going back to that idea of dignity, that they're all dressed up in their best clothes to go out on whatever night of the week that they were you know, doing this. And, and um, uh, so, yeah, it's just, you know, him ha having captured that is, um, it's that era and that particular landmark is really significant uh, the, to jazz history in general and, Amer and, and American history because yes. music is, um, was America's music and frankly would not have happened in the way that it did if it didn't involve the transatlantic slave trade. So, um, and the other picture, the other image, uh, uh, the slow blues, um, it captures an intimacy uh, that I, I that is really interesting to me. Um, I, I and I was really kind of fascinated with the um, the different faces and different expressions and the um, how close or far apart dancers were to each other. And I mean, I think that could have happened at the Savoy. It also could have happened at some after hours you know, club, you know, speakeasy club, you know, where, where the, all the musicians would go after they did the big gig, they would go to some other place and, and sure. you know, 
know, and, and this era for jazz music was meant, it was strategic and purposely about dancing. Right. Swing music, whether it's at an up-tempo or a down-tempo is dance music. And so, um, and within that you see some of the amazing, you know, feats of acrobatics and, and, and rhythm. And sometimes you can get something really quiet, you know, maybe, maybe it's Lionel Hampton playing a ballad and it's just mm -hmm. two people dancing together. And, and I appreciated um, how that was captured in the image and also the image itself in that slow blues um, has a sepia kind of quality to it, even though it's a caricature right. in terms of colors that are used in that one. And, and that was really interesting to me too, the, the brownness and the rustness of it as opposed to the black and white depiction, which feels, um, I know it's of that other era of those those Harlem images and when they use color in a way that he doesn't use in, in the later black and white line drawings. Um, but I was really drawn to that. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, he it, it could have been an after hour show. He was a very serious uh, um, jazz fan and, and dance fan. I mean, we uh, and we know he went up to Harlem. I one time asked him about Harlem and he was telling me about uh, uh, going up there. And when I asked about the Cotton Club, he said to me, oh, that was for tourists. Right. He didn't he didn't see it as a place that you went if you really wanted to see uh, music and dance. You know, well, like right, because something like the Cotton Club was specifically designed for white audiences. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's a, that, I think that's a whole other podcast, but there's a, yeah, right. <laughs> a whole, um, there's a lot of sort of interrogation you can do around art that black artists are putting in front of white audiences and how that, and what's in that art versus art that was being, by black people that was being put in front of other black people. And um, and how that changes uh, context and it context and it also changes content. Right. Uh, so he's absolutely right in that even though there was great artistry happening at the Cotton Club, um, it, it you know uh, it, as my friends in hip hop would say, it wasn't for the heads. It's not where the heads go. You yeah. Know? No. And, and frankly. Wouldn't have been allowed because of the way that the segregating of audiences worked. So sure, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to shift gears entirely because I want to ask about one of the more recent drawings in the show and uh, uh, a woman who I think is uh, extraordinary on many levels, uh, Judith Jameson. Um, yeah, I you know I'm I'm a I was born in '72, and so there isn't a time in my life where I didn't understand the magic of, of as a dancer. There wasn't a time in my life I didn't understand the magic of Ailey and right. Judith Jamison plays in that. And um, what I what I enjoyed about that particular drawing was how it captured her length. <laughs> She's a very very tall woman, you know? right? And uh, and with that comes this sense of like real, like you feel like you're in the presence right. of royalty. Um, and uh, and and that particular image comes after Ailey's death, and so you know Judith Jamison was his muse for some time, and then she left to to go you know explore other uh, opportunities after you know she had a great deal of success with the company, and and it always maintained a relationship with the company, but you know she wanted to go try other things. This is what artists do, and so um, you know she went off and she did Broadway. She was in Sophisticated Ladies, and and. Um, she was doing some guest work with ballet companies and she was making her own uh, choreography uh, and um, at a certain at a point in the 80s uh, Alvin Ailey like so many people uh, became HIV positive and it was his wish that after his death that she would succeed him as being the artistic director and so that image um, captures 10 years into her having assumed that role with the company right. and uh, my understanding of that piece is uh, she was exploring her own history in terms of being a black dancer in America and her experiences with sort of the community and um, lineage and roots, roots space uh, training that she had as a black dancer with other black dancers and also her experience as a black dancer in white spaces. And, um, and so this image depicts her and some of the cast members and there's this they're, they're close, but also apart because she's assumed this role. So you see the hierarchy in the image, right? Right. Role, which I which I really appreciated, and also it just you know I think there's certain faces uh, that probably are um, just great for caricature, 
they're so distinct and right. certain faces and bodies in the case of drawing dancers. And, you know, she's got all that length and she's got those great cheekbones. And, and, uh, and I think that's what uh, Herschel captures. So. It, it's interesting that you mentioned that because he did do an individual uh, portrait of her in 1978 when she was in a show called The Only Game in Town. And he presented her, her arm raised, she was one long line you know, and those high cheekbones are right there. Um, every, uh, it's like everything you described is in this other drawing and it's obviously that's how he saw her. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's- That's who she was. It's that, yeah, I, I have an, I actually have a poster, an Ailey poster to my left <laughs> in my apartment that, that, that has her on stage uh, and vintage poster from the 70s. And, and I mean, yeah, everyone sees her as this, you know, uh, statuesque, you know, um, but but if the thing of it is, is is that within all of that length, there is always this elegance and this power. Uh, so there's there's not, she's not what you would call lanky, right? right. The reason that I'm using the word statuesque versus like lanky. <laughs> right, right. No, yeah. no, she seems like a a real force of nature. Uh, every photo I've seen of her and. Uh, uh, you know, cry and and the dances that she did that she really was the the muse and and the iconic uh, figure of the Ailey Company even when she wasn't leading it. You know? Yeah, you know there there are um, Ailey operates as a family, and so there's this you know legacy of amazing women. Um, you know, Ailey came out of a matriarchal home, and so I think right. he always had a great esteem and reverence and um inspiration from women you know the, the piece you mentioned cry that was judith jamison signature solo um was dedicated to black women everywhere you know and and particularly mothers and his mother right, right. so uh um, I mean, he brought his mother i think to the opening of that I probably mean, the, the yeah parents. yeah and so um certainly uh jamison is it's she's the she is the the most well known and and um but it's but it's interesting the way that company functions, particularly in dance, because um, dance is dominated by male leadership. And um, and so it's no accident that he wanted her to succeed him yeah. after his death, you know? It, it And I think it says something about how communities function, how black communities function, how black families function. And, um, and her leadership of the company after his death was extraordinary, you know, um, at a time when I think um, it was very hard for legacy companies to maintain um, artistic and financial health. Uh, Ailey has done extraordinarily well, um, right. you know, and peer companies of the same stature, not all of them survived or, or they may still be in existence, but they're not operating at the capacity that they used to after their leaders died, you know. And right. I think there's something to to be said about um, it's sort of a fascination with mine about what successive leadership looks like, and I think right. there's something to be looked at there in terms of what that, what that model became after his death, um, and how how you know they uh, they function as a company on a level uh, that I don't know that any company could ever replicate, <laughs> you know, in terms of what they've been able to do, like like the entity that they are, you know, and right. now. She's since stepped out of that role and is now in an emeritus role and Robert Battle is now leading the company. But the foundation she laid from the foundation that Ailey laid is really just amazing. Um, and, a, and a death is a crisis, you know. Right, without a doubt. And there's a lot of uncertainty that you're walking into and what can we take from the people who figured it out. Well, that is what I think is so amazing about the show that you put together is there are so many individuals like this. I mean, one of the people we didn't talk about is Catherine Dunham, who was so uh, committed to not only taking dance forward, but making sure that we understood where it came from. What's interesting um, about that particular image, if I can just quickly say, is sure. that was one of the only images that I was familiar with. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really famous Catherine Dunham image. Sure. And um, it, uh, it was on a poster for uh, a really one of her, you know, great shows. And so it, that when you look at like the history of Catherine Dunham, that image shows up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that was really interesting to me because I, I don't think I knew that it was Herschel in part because that's not in my mind. It's not what I thought Hirschfeld drawings were. Exactly. Um, and 
you know, I, I thought that they were, I, I just thought line, like these line drawings. And so I was like, oh yeah, this one I know. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> that, well, then maybe that's the place I should start from, which is like the things that I recognize are things that I know and what's gonna complement those things. And, and also I, I think not similar from the Josephine Baker discussion, you know, she's, she's you know, uh, depicted as this sort of saucy, sassy black lady as well. And, yeah. and Catherine Dunham was um, a woman of many, 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 many layers, an anthropologist, a choreographer, an educator, an activist, and um, yeah. had this long and varied and critical career to the way that black dance functions. Um, and so it was really kind of a treat to, uh, to encounter that image as I was sorting through all of the ones. I guess the um, the last thing I just kind of want to say in regards to all of those images is um, one of the harder things about the exhibit for me, and I, it required me to do a lot of research, um, was really figuring out what to do with caricature mm. in America for Black artists. And sure. It was hard, and I had some 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 conflict about how to approach this, and if I was even the right one to be doing this. And um, ultimately, I decided that you know that there was something that I that I wanted to say about these images and and putting them together. Um, but I think looking at the depiction of black artists by white artists is fraught, and. Sure. Caricature in particular, because of the way it accentuates specific features um, in the wrong hands can very easily fall over into those minstrel caricatures and um, and and I had to navigate some images that I was not comfortable with. Uh, understood. I mean, we look, I mean, even as a white person looking at them, you know, I understand the world that he created them in, but that doesn't make them any more acceptable now, or, or, or really, I would think even acceptable then, but that was what society accepted. You know, for me, it's about context, because again, as a jazz historian, I often have to encounter a lot of work from the early 20th century that the context of where it's situated is problematic, mm -hmm. but the artistry that it depicts is right. extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, my approach to the the exhibit was I'm always on the side of these artists. Yes. And anything that I can do that places them in their rightful esteem during the eras when they maybe didn't get it, that's where I, that's that's the work that I want to do. Right. Um, and so I hope that as uh, people, particularly black people, encounter this exhibit, that that that's something that is coming through in, in the information that I shared with the images and the images themselves that I selected. Yeah, and, and that's really what this, this uh, show is not about Hirschfeld. It's about the dancers. And that's really what we wanted to uh, focus on. We're, we're, you know, people know Hirschfeld and they have their own opinion. But I think, and for people who think they know all of Hirschfeld's work, it's these images they think, oh, I never saw this one before because they, you know, those aren't the ones selected. If, you know, when they select a dancer, if a publication selects a Hirschfeld drawing of a dancer, it's a stare, it's, uh, it's Barishnikov, it's, it's Gene Kelly, because I'm sure there's a variety of reasons. Uh, the fact that they were white is a big one, but it's also the ones that people know. Um, so it is a, it's a great pleasure of ours to be able to shine the spotlight on so many of these dancers, uh, uh, you know, figures like Bunny Briggs and Honey Coles, you know, I love hearing about them. They're just, they're fascinating uh, dancers. I, I think the, you know, and then there were others that I, I could have selected, but I just felt like, oh, it's taking me in terms of like a story that I, you know, or collection, it's taking me in a direction I didn't want to, that I felt like, oh, this is going to confuse some some of the narrative that I'm creating here. But um, but I think, uh, you know, the, the image to me that kind of captures what I'm trying to say is the Sammy Davis image, actually. All of the oh. All of the Sammy. Stop the world, I want to get off. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, yeah, and, it's, and that's like later, you know. Yeah, 78, yeah. Earlier, you know, um, but the, all of the depictions of the Sammies, uh, 
and the different expressions and the complexity of of that as a you know like because like the performance it happened it's done there's a recording of it I've never seen right. it um, but to being left with this image of this person who's so three dimensional and 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 the portrayal of of who he was on stage because having seen Sammy so many times I mean Sammy is the like, like best of the best I can't keep calling everyone the best of the best there can be many best. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, but specifically there's so many different depictions of him in that one image and yeah. the complexity of that brings a humanity and a dignity to who he was as a performer you sure. know, that I think is really important to how we frame the artistic contributions of these artists looking back on the work that they did in the 20th century. Um, it's not enough to say, oh, here's someone who overcame racism and became famous. That is that is absolutely 100% true. True. Also, like, let's look at the complexity of their art, you know, right. at, at the thing that Sammy could do that, oh, that's what's great about those tap dancers. They were, they're all so very singular. Right. So the thing that Honey Coles can do is not the things that Bunny Briggs does. Right. They're, they're distinctly different. And same with Sammy, because Sammy was also, among many things, a tap dancer. And sure. so the Sammy tap dance was not the way Charlie Atkins tap danced, you know, and and the the richness of that palette and of those contributions informs me as an artist every single day that I do my work. Well, I think that's really what you uh, captured in the exhibition, and we're so grateful that you took the time to go through hundreds of images, if not thousands of images, uh, to select these pieces. I think anybody who has an interest in any aspect of, of dance, of Black history, of Hirschfeld, has a reason to check out this exhibition. Um, it uh, opens uh, February 1st, and we hope that uh, everyone gets a chance to come see it. Um, and uh, let us know what you think. Well, Melanie, is there anything that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say? or? Part of the reason that I accepted the, the, the invitation to curate this was um, to be captured by Hirschfeld puts these artists in a sort of um, rare camp of, of people, of, of, of artists in, in, you know, in the U.S. Um, and, and I think that's important, particularly in looking at the like the Nicholas Brothers story and how right. we frame it around the ceiling of their career. Um, and so I think it's it's important to to note that being captured by Hirschfeld also is another sort of indicator of success that was achieved. Right. That, like I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to. No, no, it was a sign that you had that you had achieved the the kind of uh, fame, celebrity, respect that uh, a, a newspaper artist of that time could capture you. And remember, people who saw that Nicholas Brothers drawing opened up their paper and saw it, yeah. and right away. You, you you sort of get what it's all about. You read the caption and you say Nicholas Brothers. He's he's telling you a great deal about the Nicholas Brothers, and uh, in some ways he helped with their immortality. We're here it is, uh, you know, um, ninety years later, and we're still talking about the Nicholas Brothers, and you know, and from that drawing. So, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say too, though, is that um, it's. Overly simplify, overly simplifies to talk about these artists as being on the margins, mm -hmm. and and certainly um, barriers to access of systemic racism in this country does situate them within the margins of what was considered successful by their peer white artists. Right. But the reality is, when the art was being made, <laughs> there they were firmly in the in the center of the page right you know whether or not that's the way that history decides to catalog the work right these depictions to me are indicators of of 
not only the achievement, but the the actuality of what was happening in the moment. Like that Nicholas Brothers image, um, I, I went back and read this chapter of this, um, one of the sort of um, most well-known jazz history books is by um, Marshall Stearns, and, and he catalogs the history of vernacular dance and um, up through like the mid 20th century. And the Nicholas Brothers talk about that particular production. And they say, and the way that it gets written about is um, in most books is that, you know, this is a George Balanchine production. And if I hadn't had a 150 character limit, I would have gone on about the way that this thing actually functions, which is that one of the Nicholas Brothers says, um, Balanchine watched us dance and, and play around and be in rehearsal together. And for that section, he didn't show us anything. He just told us. And so they're actually the choreographers of their own number. Wow. It's not the way it gets written. <laughs> right, right. No, of course. You know, Have you ever so, seen any film? There's, you know, there's a whole movie taken uh, uh, of a scene from that show. Right. Where, yeah. You know, yeah. where, you know, they're, they're jumping over each other. And I mean, it's amazing. And it completely stands to reason. And so again, thinking about well, what does it mean to be on the margins when you're the one who actually made your own work? You know, you maybe you didn't get credit for it. So looking at, at how to reframe the actuality of what was happening in the real rehearsal room is what was truly happening on the stage and not the way that um, in books it gets, it, it's easy to be reductive. Right. That there was a dancer and there was a choreographer and, and there was racism in the end, you know, right. and it's, it's more complicated than that. And, um, and um, these artists are way more embedded into the center of the page than history would let us think. Sure. I think that's the last thing. No, no, that's, that's perfect. And, and, and I think that's what you did a great job in the show of, of doing that. So thank you very much. And thank you for your time today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, everybody go to MelanieGeorge.org and learn all the things that she is doing because you won't believe it. Uh, it's, it's like this whole show, except uh, with many other aspects of it. <laughs> Thank you, Melanie. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening.